You're listening to The Itch. I'm KC. I'm Dan. And I'm Aaron. And we are still plotting away for our next batch of new episodes. And, of course, enjoying our break, taking as much time as we can to refresh our minds and get ready for the next season. But we were really proud of how our Black Rockers episode turned out. And to honor Black History Month, being it, it's the start of it in February, the whole month. <laughs> That's right. You can listen to this episode all month <laughs> on repeat if you're, if you're weird. We wanted to re-release this as a tribute to Black History Month. Yeah. So this is three white non-historians um, giving you a very introductory overview of Black Rockers in America, which is, in fairness, about all we're probably qualified to be doing. Um, but there is ample opportunity to continue your own research beyond this. But we do hope that it serves as a nice introduction and a way to honor some rockers of color that we have greatly appreciated over the years. Yes, very much so. And we challenge you to learn something after this episode, if you didn't learn something in the episode itself. There's going to be a quiz on, on Twitter <laughs> or something, maybe. Survey monkey quiz. We'll see how we feel. Giving you extra credit. <laughs> <laughs> so if you didn't hear this one before, have fun. And if you did hear it before, then I listened to it again earlier this week and, and really felt like I was learning stuff all over again because it's been a while since we recorded it. So maybe it'll be the same for you. But either way, enjoy, and we will be back soon with new episodes. You're listening to The Itch, Rock Matters. This is episode number 10. My name is Casey. My name is Dan. And I'm Aaron. This week, we're going to talk about black rockers and how their lives matter, not only to us and to how they should matter to everybody, but also into the rock industry and to rock music. Black rockers, people of color, have had a huge influence on rock music as a whole since it began, as well as on us as a radio show and as individuals. And so this week, we're going to pay tribute to that and kind of recognize and honor and tell a few stories about some people who deserve it. And the other thing is, too, with everything that's going on, not just in the country, but with black people, um, you know, they, they are under attack. And that's why we are willing to admit that black lives do matter. And we want to stand in solidarity with with our black uh, brothers and sisters to let them know that we can't possibly understand what they're going through, but we stand with them. And the other thing I wanted to make mention is that we also wanted to try to do a little bit of educating everybody in how much Black Lives have influenced rock music. Like, There's a lot of stuff that we don't know because, well, basically it was marketed to us to where you know they didn't want us to know. And also, I just wanted to talk about how kind of one thing snowballs into another and how you have the early influencers such as Chuck Berry and Little Richard, and then they influence artists like the Beatles, who then in turn influence all the way down the line and it just kind of snowballs into music history. It's a huge footprint. And so we've uh, spent some time this week educating ourselves a little bit and reminiscing about our own experiences and kind of hoping to put something together that is uh, helpful and informative and honoring. And one thing I, I do want to say right off the bat is that 
you know, this is obviously a touchy subject. You have three white guys talking about black rock music and but the idea is to educate and to inform and to try to just make sure that everybody knows that they have a lot of influence and America is a melting pot. One of the things that makes this country or can make this country great is the different influences of other cultures influencing each other and coming together to make the greatest thing ever, which is, in my opinion, rock music. Rock music's a melting pot too. Exactly. So I guess we wanted to start uh, what we'll call the beginning, huh? Yeah, a little bit of rock history. Yeah. Yeah. We have Chuck Berry, who is the father of rock and roll, more or less. <laughs> Godfather of rock and roll, I'd say. Especially around St. Louis parts. Oh, yes. To see that statue down on Del Mar is one of the coolest things in the world. If you have never seen it, I definitely recommend checking it out. It is right across from Blueberry Hill, the club he used to play at all the time. Sorry to steal your thunder. I just, I really love that statue, Casey. <laughs> it's so, it's so cool. No, you're, you're fine. Well, he was, he was the developer of uh, rhythm and blues, which become known as R and B, and had so many hit songs like Johnny Be Good and Roll Over Beethoven, and just kind of was the first footprint on what would be rock and roll. You think maybe he could be almost called like the first rock star? Yeah. He was a wild man. He was a he was a showman, you know, uh, eccentric performances. The way he played and the way he danced around while playing. Yeah. Wasn't he one of the first to incorporate solos into his guitar playing? Yes. I don't know if that was a huge thing before Chuck Berry came around. I don't think it really was. And, you know, movies like Back to the Future kind of accentuate that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't sure if we were going to get to Back to the Future or not, <laughs> but... <laughs> if you want to see a related story, watch the end of that movie. <laughs> and honestly, in the in the last five years or so, we, we've lost a ton of the early black rockers like Chuck Berry, Little Richard this year, and Fats Domino, and B.B. King. But uh, talking about Little Richard a little bit, I wanted to, as Dan made mention, how the the record companies or the radio stations kind of had a stronghold on what they wanted to put out there. But with Little Richard specifically, a lot of stations didn't want to play his music because it was they didn't want to hear that type of, of music. But then they wanted guys like Pat Boone to cover his songs so it would be more popular for the white audience, which sounds terrible to say in today's <laughs> time frame, but that's the truth. It's interesting. Nowadays you hear, I mean, covers are, are a huge part of music and all the time people are, are covering each other's work. Um, but for the most part, people know who the originator of the song was and that tends to be the most loved version. Right. Back at this time period, it was other people making huge hits and huge money. And a lot of times the public was not really aware of who actually wrote the songs. Exactly. And, you know, guys like uh, Pat Boone, pretty much his entire career was uh, singing covers of black artists songs. Fats Domino, Ain't That a Shame, Little Richard, Tutti Frutti and Long Tail Sally. And actually, so if you ever listen, get a chance to listen to Little Richard's version of Tutti Frutti and then listen to Pat Boone. Pat Boone is like the whitest white bread off, off <laughs> clapping like 
there's uh, he took the rhythm out of it. Yeah, well, there's there's no there's no soul. There's no he's just flatline singing it. Like there's no there's no woos. He's the reason why we got the stereotype that we have no rhythm. I mean, it's, it's exactly. true, but we we definitely. I mean, that's exactly. probably his fault. I I think it's all his fault. Yes. Does he even do the the wop bop a bop? He does, but it sounds it sounds <laughs> so white when he does it. Oh, that's terrible. That's so. <laughs> I'm quite offended right now, actually, because I haven't actually heard Pat Boone's version of that. You you should definitely listen to it after we're done recording here. <laughs> From what I understand, too, uh, Little Richard not only was his music covered by white artists, but Little Richard himself is actually one of the first to have women's undergarments thrown at him on stage. <laughs> I didn't know that. I actually just read that recently. <laughs> and apparently that resulted in other female fans repeating the action after the, the first time it happened. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's, I guess, why certain radio stations didn't want to play his stuff, I guess. And that was the thing with Pat Boone. Like, he was the guy that people back in the 50s wanted their kids to be like so like don't be like little richard be like pat boone so he was the, the wholesome hero as it were yeah meanwhile his underwear throwing song is being covered by elvis and the beatles and stuff as well and so clearly they found some value in that track yeah something all three of those rock star artists had in common i don't know maybe not so much pat boone <laughs> Well, and to put that in perspective, you know, listen to the Beatles cover of Long Tall Sally and Paul McCartney puts in a lot of soul and tries to emulate Little Richard's voice instead of just kind of going through the motions. From what I understand, I actually read that Little Richard worked with uh, Paul McCartney on that cover. And so that's probably why it sounds like that, because he actually kind of helped him sing the song. And Paul McCartney, he was just flabbergasted at, at the state of things in the U.S. And, and I don't know if you guys know this, but one of the most popular Beatles songs ever is about black women. Uh, the song called Blackbird, because British people call women birds. And so the, the song Blackbird is about the struggles of black women in America at the time. And it, it's still the same fight. But it's just crazy to know that like it, British artists were coming over and just finding what was going on in America atrocious. And yet it's. It's still happening. Yeah. And to speak on a different version of the, you know, the atrocities of like covering Little Richard's songs with anybody that did them, he didn't really receive royalties from, from doing so. They just covered it and then they got to make the money off of it. And Fred Paris, who wrote In the Still of the Night, which is one of the biggest songs ever, sold between 10 and 15 million copies. And instead of getting over $100,000 in royalties, he signed over the rights to it. Can you guess how much he signed over the rights for? Oh, I have no idea. Probably nothing. 50 bucks? I don't know. It's almost nothing. It's more than 50 bucks, but it's $783. Okay. Such <laughs> an odd number. <laughs> That's a very particular low ball he got right there. Yeah. Instead of making over $100,000 in royalties, he gets 783 bucks. And it's horrible how, how common that kind of story was at that time period. Right. He did get a little bit of retribution in 1984. Um, he actually sued the record companies and won a huge lawsuit. But, I mean... As he should. 
yeah, well, he was making music back in what the fifties. It took him thirty five years to get. It's absolutely ridiculous. It took him. It did. It took him thirty five years to get paid. Right. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. But it's amazing. You see some of those artists, and like you said, how they influenced artists like the Beatles, who literally pretty much influenced every rock band that came after them. Exactly. Yeah. And so you just see this domino effect kind of going on throughout music. Yeah, I agree. And it's obvious in, in all of rock music that, you know, the Little Richard and, and the uh, and the influence of Chuck Berry is evident because I think Chuck Berry was one of the first that... Um, he was one of the first to bend the guitar strings and doing the bottleneck slides, which is a staple of rock music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the time it's more prevalent with blues artists, but it was definitely essential to, to rock music as well. The influence of, of black musicians on just the guitar itself is fantastic because from there you go into the 60s and then you have Jimi Hendrix, who to this day despite having passed away 50 years ago, is regarded as among... He's in the, the upper echelon of top guitarists in all of history. Many rock guitar sounds were actually developed by you know Chuck Berry, Jimi Hendrix, and others. Yeah, you just have no idea how much... you know. The, and, and others like uh, Muddy Waters, sister Rosetta Tharp. Um, and actually, Muddy Waters was one of the first musicians to amplify a guitar. Yeah. And we're very grateful to any musicians <laughs> that Amplify the guitar because our radio show and this podcast wouldn't exist without amplified and distorted guitars. <laughs> exactly. So we can honestly thank Muddy Waters because there would be no rock music if it wasn't for him amplifying his guitar. <laughs> yep. And Hendrix with, with fuzzy distortions and wah-wahs and, and so many things that are just just staples of rock music now that barely existed before he came around yeah and i will say that you know unfortunately when Jimi hendrix died a lot of the popularity of rock music kind of died out in the black culture and so for almost a whole decade there really wasn't any influence in in rock music and it's evident if you look at all the hair band (laughs) that is an atrocious time and i'm sorry for anybody who likes that music but i'm gonna be quite honest Hairband metal was the worst episode in all rock, <laughs> actually in all music, all music history. I don't know about all music because disco is pretty bad. Uh, I, I, you know what though? At least you could dance to disco. There's no reason. <laughs> there's nothing. No reason for hair metal. There should not have existed. It, it, it was. It was atrocious. Um, okay. I need to make a disclaimer here. Our our bio for the show mentions. That you know, pretty much everything in the rock realm is is fair game for us, but uh, hair metal is not going to happen. <laughs> there are exceptions we, to the rule. You know, I will say we do play certain songs from hair metal bands, but it, it, at this point, it's the songs. You know, back in in the early '80s, it was all about the the show. It was all about the music videos, and 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 you can definitely tell that there was no influence from black people. Like we we were very evidently white and and. <laughs> Just doing stupid, stupid stuff. Thank God, in 1985, the Black Rock Coalition was formed. And I don't know if you guys know about this. It was formed by Vernon Reed, the guitarist for the rock band Living Color. Greg Tate, who's a journalist for The Village Voice. D.K. Dyson, the lead singer of I and I. And Conda Mason, who's a producer. The main focus 
of the Black Rock Coalition was to fight racial discrimination in the music industry. This group basically kind of helped take back rock music and popularize it uh, in in the black uh, culture. And I think it's because of the efforts of this group. And if you uh, get a chance to look into them, it's just crazy how much work that they really did back in the 80s. One of the things that they were responsible for, they began pushing past the barriers through marketing their albums by strategically designing album covers. So in the 1980s and 1990s, most black rock bands such as Living Cover and Fishbone had illustrations rather than photos as their album covers. And the reason for that was just basically a marketing technique to avoid any confusion that the consumer may have off their judgment of the album cover as opposed to the music that it contained. The assumption was that if you saw a black person on the cover, that it was music, I'm sorry, that it was R&B or hip-hop music. It wasn't Oh, yeah. So that was the reason why they really stopped putting the artists themselves on the cover through the 1980s and 1990s. Because of our our ingrained impressions of what that would mean. Yeah. Correct. Got it. And so the group, the Black Rock Coalition, they've actually been fighting silently and just doing all kinds of stuff behind. Well, I say silently, silently because we're not necessarily in the black culture, so we don't see all the work that they're putting in. And all the, uh, you know, all the things that they've contributed to rock music as well. Yeah. So I want to I want to throw a, a shout out to one important artist who who was holding it down during the 80s while everybody else went here metal. Um, and that's Prince, who kind of followed in those like little Richardy footsteps with his very eccentric, flamboyant persona. And he's, he's very literally colorful. The man was the color purple is permanently associated with him. And and he was out here shredding on the guitar and not only as a rocker, but as a guy who incorporated like literally just about every mainstream style that existed to that point and maybe even, you know, pioneered some new ones out of it because he had he had R&B in there. He had some soul and some kind of psychedelic things going on. And then it really was just this like all purpose, like funk rock situation that Prince brought to the table that uh, as far as artistry in general much less just artistry among um black performers it's just i mean the guy is an absolute legend and he was holding down the fort for for artists throughout uh his career yeah one of the greatest of all time yeah when you can be known as the artist (laughs) that says a lot about you yeah he reached a new elite level when you are the artist (laughs) When you're formerly known as Prince, but now you're a symbol. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and as kind of silly as that was, if you can get away with something like that, then you know you've made it. <laughs> yeah. The things that he do- did were, was incredible. And I have to say that one of my absolute favorite memories of Prince is his halftime performance at the Super Bowl. I don't remember which one it was, but the fact that he's playing, like, for one, he still decided to play his entire set. It was pouring down rain Mm -hmm. for him to start playing purple rain in the rain. It was just, it was just incredible. It was, it was one of the greatest performance I think in in the Super Bowl uh, halftime shows of all time. There's no doubt about that. It was a Super Bowl in 2007 and it was nuts. That was just, yeah, I, I would agree. That was the last, um, I, maybe maybe I shouldn't be this extreme to say it. I want to say that was the last Super Bowl halftime show performance that I thoroughly enjoyed. I, and I could be forgetting one later. I don't know. 
but I distinctly remember the Prince one and it was glorious. He brought something that other artists didn't to that spectacle. The rest of them were all pretty terrible, so that's pretty much the only one worth remembering. And shoot, I mean, you want to take that a step further. The artist that we that we discussed last week, the Foo Fighters, and we actually mentioned, I think, on, on the second episode of this podcast, Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters performing at that tribute concert to Prince and just discussing, basically uh, geeking out about how much they loved him. Yeah. And so, I mean, if you're if you're an artist that in any way paves the way for Foo Fighters, who may or may not be America's rock band, uh, you'll have to go back and listen to that episode to find out for yourself. <laughs> but <laughs> that's, that's not a bad thing to have on your resume either. So the domino effect continues. There were notable performances after that, but but nothing like Prince. And, and I think just the whole show itself, him in the, the purple suit, the purple guitar that was in the shape of the artist, you know, it was raining and it was just it was incredible. The whole the whole show was just the lightning in the background. Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. a literal perfect storm providing <laughs> a better light show than what they had. Like, like I'm almost positive. I, I remember like they were telling him that they probably shouldn't have gone out there. And he's like, no, I don't care. Like he <laughs> could have easily gotten struck by lightning. <laughs> yeah. So 140 million people saw Prince play the uh, Super Bowl halftime show. And it wasn't enough. This is true. <laughs> but yeah, you can you can take the importance of black lead guitarists, like specifically, like I said, because you got Hendrix and you got Prince, you got you got Slash coming out somewhere in that that time period. And Tom Morello. Tom Morello. I was going to go to Lenny Kravitz next, following oh, that's that. That's a good one. That tradition. Yeah. I think Lenny Kravitz. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But Lenny Kravitz is so so very very clearly, you know, influenced by guys like Hendrix. Yeah. And just his whole persona is just the the coolest guy. And he had a lot going for him. And then Morello, whenever you want to take it to a whole a whole new level and a whole new twist on it, which I know he Rage Against the Machine is definitely among the itch's favorite artists. And I think Dan in particular has an affinity for Tom. And yeah, they're just he's a a super awesome uh, dude. And I've loved every single band that he's been in. I actually got to see Street Sweeper Social Club live with Boots Riley as the lead singer and got to meet both Tom Morello and Boots Riley. And they, for one, it was just incredible. They're so down to earth. They're so awesome. And like Boots Riley was coming around. We were sitting at a table. He was coming around like trying to talk to us. He didn't have a voice. It's like, no, dude, save your voice. We exactly. need to play the next show. And so it's just that leaves such an impression. Um, that's I think it was part just because he made himself available to come out. And while the guy, I will say the guy in front of me, Got to take most of Tom's time because he had a freaking tattoo of Tom Morello's face on his leg. <laughs> I'll do it. That, oh that, my god, that does earn you a bump to the front of the line. Yeah, it wasn't fair. I was I was competing with that. I don't have no tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Dan was in the background drawing a picture of Tom Morello on his hand in like a permanent marker, just to like yeah, <laughs> see what he do with it. <laughs> but Tom Morello. I feel like he, he he was great for rock music at the time because we were we were talking last week about how you know it was right around the grunge entering and, and kind of peaking almost in the 92, 94 kind of era um, when Rage Against the Machine came out and it was just so different. It was it was you know there had been uh, rap music incorporated into rock before with you know like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, Faith No More, the Run DMC. Public Enemy as well. Mm-hmm. But hearing 
the way that they did it with just the strange guitar sounds that Tom Morello made, it, it hooked me. I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I didn't really get into them until Bulls on Parade came out. Bulls on Parade was the first song that that I heard from them, and it hooked me right away. It was it was the politicalness of the song, as well as the uh, just the heavy guitars and and Zach screaming out. It was I was hooked. That was one of my favorite bands growing up. Well, and we were talking about earlier with making interesting sounds. Uh, Tom Morello certainly knows how to make interesting sounds on a guitar. Yeah, he was a kind of. You know, and again, it's it's the same thing as I said before. Different perspectives bring better ideas to whatever they're contributing towards, and I I fully believe that you know that's one reason why he is so awesome because he's just doing stuff that he that nobody had thought of before, like using feedback to to make sounds or or to play you know to get the the different sounds that he was getting. He's, he's just an innovator of rock music. It blew my mind as a teenager reading the the liner notes to Rage Against the Machine albums, because it, within each album, there's a line in there that says something to the effect of all sounds on this record were made using only vocals, guitar, bass, and drums. And they put that there. You'd have to presume that the majority of the reason why that was there was because people heard what Tom Morello was doing and were like, what the heck is that? <laughs> this guy's got a synth. He's got some kind of keys and some electronic magic and tomfoolery going on here. Nope. It was just him knowing how to use his guitars really well. Well, and we've talked in shows past of how TRL influenced a lot of people. Um, in 1999, the Battle of Los Angeles came out, and I remember him playing Sleep Now in the Fire live on TRL, and it, it, seeing him literally use the feedback on the amplifier to just make the guitar solo was incredible. Or like, there's other times where he's pulled the plug out of his guitar and he taps that on the guitar string to make his mm -hmm. guitar so he's just he's such a, a, an innovator like i said just so creative with what he has done and uh and obviously a uh a trendsetter you see guys like him and then and, and going back to hendrix again and they're like these guitar playing mad scientists where they're just like they see the thing and they're like i can do 18 things with that that nobody else has thought of before <laughs> and and then they do yeah and it's fantastic yes <laughs> I think the love of Rage Against the Machine has also helped me fall into love with other bands that are heavily influenced and possibly influenced by Rage Against the Machine or other artists like that. One of my favorite bands in high school, it was kind of, I don't know, was taboo the right word for it? There wasn't, when I was in high school, there weren't very many bands that were popular that were that had black people in them. And when Seven Dust came out, for one, it was a whole new raw sound. Uh, they were heavy. And, and you had this big black guy with dreads uh, leading the band and had such a powerful, distinctive voice that was so awesome and fit so well with the music that they were making. Rajon Witherspoon, still to this day, I think, is one of the strongest voices in rock music. Yeah, I, I love his voice. I, I, I love everything that Seven Dust has done. And, and uh, they've been one of, like, I think we've mentioned in, in shows past, they've been one of the uh, the workaholic bands, you know, they're just uh -huh. coming out with albums almost every two, two years, two or three years. And they're always solid albums. Then a lot of that is him to thank as the functionally, the leader of that band. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, obviously you can tell that these, these artists have made a huge influence on, on us. And, and that's, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to get the show back in 2004, because we were influenced by a lot of artists. We wanted to get these artists out there and play as many as we possibly could. And that's one reason why we started The Itch. Yeah. 
And, you know, Seven Dust was uh, played a role in, in my like earlier rock development as well. And so did another band that was not only clearly influenced by Rage Against the Machine, but was a multi-ethnic band, which was payable on death. P.O.D. was one of my favorite. I really got into the rap rock stuff when it first started to come out. And they were among the very first rock bands that I ever saw live. And so you had Sonny with his dreads. You had you had Trey uh, being a fantastic bassist for them. And and Seven Dust was one of their early touring partners. And I remember going to that show and just being blown away by the. I don't know, the intensity of their shows, but also just the coolness of them. Stage presence, uh, uh, the stage presence of both bands. Yeah. And just it felt like they were taking rock music into a new area. And I don't know, I guess you could say that they they did to some degree, or at least they played an important role, especially in that moment for POD. We've discussed before how they were mentioning back to TRL, how they were a, a mainstay there for a couple of years. And so there's there's a lot there and I'm very appreciative. And, I, and, and even until recently, I hadn't really realized how important that probably was to me growing up to to be introduced to a band like particular like POD, who was a bunch of Latino dudes and a black guy. And most of the stuff I'd listened to to that point was very, very white, like Pat Boone level white. Uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> so a little diversity certainly didn't hurt me. And it certainly helped to kind of put me on the musical path that led to where we are right now. As we said in previous episodes, you know, we do, put a lot of determination on how we like a band based on their live performance. And, and there's something about bands that have stage presence that just really hooks us as an audience or uh, as a music lover. Mm -hmm. So right around the time that we started the radio show, I got a chance to go see seven dust live. And it was honestly one of my favorite concerts of all time. I will never forget this concert. I was introduced to a couple of bands for one. I, one I already knew, um, was non-point and so that's why I got the ticket because it was non-point opening up for Seven Dust and I didn't see non-point live before but I already had listened to their music and, and loved their their albums that I had I, and obviously I was a huge fan of Seven Dust by the time 2004 rolled around and so I really think that it should have been the, called the tour like the uh, awesome lead singer with Dreads tour because uh, that that's what all of the well, obviously what Nonpoint and uh, Seven Dust had, and then I was introduced to a band called Skin Dread. Uh, they actually opened up for all of those bands, and this was at the pageant. I had never seen this band, and we were kind of talking in a circle. and And Benji's stage presence was the reason why you know we we're at the show as the show started. We were kind of way off from the front of the stage. By the end of the st show, we were right up front in Benji's face. Like he had us into the show and, and we were rocking out. Uh, I became a huge fan. And then as soon as I had mentioned them, uh, well, Casey. In college, our student music director at the time, he handed me a CD and he, cause we just started our radio show. And he's like, I think, I think these guys sound good and would fit on your show. I was listening to him and I bring it into the dorm and, start playing it for Dan. And he's like, I just saw these guys the other day. <laughs> yes. And so we immediately got their album. Uh, we started playing on our radio show, which really at the time we were a small little college radio show and to play music that nobody else in St. Louis was playing on the radio just made us feel really special to be honest. It did. Yeah. There's something cool about, I don't know if you want to call it a trendsetter, but 
just introducing people to stuff. We've mentioned a number of times throughout the show that that's one of our favorite things. It's not like a uh, like a hipster, like elitist thing. Like I'm cool because I discovered this before you. It's more like, hey, I just discovered this. Have you heard this yet? Because you should. And <laughs> it's the joy of sharing stuff. That's a good way to put it. I've never thought about it like that because I don't. Yeah, you're right. I don't have an elitist attitude like, oh, I, I don't want anybody else to hear this band. They're indie. And if anybody right. hears it, then then they won't be indie anymore. I'm I'm one that like if this is an indie band and I like it, I don't want them to be indie anymore because I want everybody to know it. Yeah. And know them and, and, and love them uh, like I do. And, and yeah, so it was incredible to be able to play Skin Dread. And then they came through town a couple of times real quick right after then. Um, I actually got to see a show at, at what used to be called the Creepy Crawl. None of you guys came for some unknown reason. But yeah, no, I actually got a chance to see them at the Creepy Crawl. And I really wish that at the time I was a little bit more confident in myself. Um, like I am now with the radio show part, because now I don't care. I'll walk right up to whoever and, and start talking to them. I'll even ask them questions and try to get an interview. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Back in 2004, when we just started doing the show, I wasn't that that bold or brazen and the band sat at the bar the entire pre-show and I could have walked up, talked to them, basically made big friends with them. Uh, although I don't think I was 21 at the time. I'm pretty sure I was 19. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah it was just, it, it, and, you know, they haven't been back since 2005. They haven't been back to St. Louis anyway. But it was because of the show at the pageant with Seven Dust and the impact that they made and then seeing them at the creepy crawl and having like a, it was a really intimate show. I was right there in front. I actually got the set list from that show. It made a huge impact on me. And that's why, you know, we've pushed them so much on, on the, the radio show because not only are they just an awesome band and they continue to make great music after what, 15 years, 16 years, but they're just really, really cool guys. In fact, uh, Aaron, if you want to talk about our kind of a, uh, our little achievement and celebration with skin dread itself. <laughs> well, first I would just want to note, cause I was thinking about this as you guys were talking exactly how important getting that CD and you seeing that concert were to the show. Cause we, we've touched on it before, but when you are starting a radio show and the station that it's on, you're playing something that is not the typical style, especially at that time. If we were rock radio DJs, on a full-time rock radio station, all the music you need is already there. You just select it. Yeah, you could probably have some say in what's added to rotation, but by and large, it's provided. Our station was something called Adult Album Alternative, and we were playing hard rock. Our entire catalog of what we played on that show was what CDs do we have at home? Because this was before streaming and downloading were really that prominent of a thing. And so I think, honestly, that this is in addition to them being a great band and great dudes, I think this is one of the reasons why we dubbed Skin Dread the Itch's favorite band was because they were kind of a game changer. They were like the first new band that I feel like we brought to the table that was not already part of our collection. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. We felt like we kind of had a special relationship to to Babylon, the album, just because it was this new thing that we were able to, to bring out. Well, and with the with the radio station having the ability or allowing us the ability to play B-sides, we played pretty much everything off of Babylon. Absolutely. And that was fantastic. We may to this day be the only show that has played the entirety of Babylon. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. And we've always done just fun things for Skin Dread. Like I remember when Union Black came out, we debuted that entire album throughout the three-hour show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
it was that important to us. It was that fantastic of an album. And probably to this day is still one of my favorite top 10 probably albums of all time. And to the question that you brought up earlier, to the importance of this band in our formulation. And, and I, it's funny to me because it sounds it's such a strange choice. It's like a reggae metal band from Wales. Like how random is that, that they would be a big thing for some dudes in St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> to the point where when we started this show, this podcast, one of the, the first things that, that came to mind was we have to get a theme song that is either Primus, as we discussed before, or Skin Dread. And if you're listening to this right now, you will have found out at the beginning of this show, and you'll hear again in not too long, that uh, we succeeded on the ladder. And we're proud to now have Skin Dread as the official theme music for the Itches Rock Matters podcast, which is just super exciting. Yes, it is. One thing I wanted to, to mention is artists resurrecting bands when tragedy strikes you know you have lane staley of alice and chains pass away and then they're kind of dormant because what's a band without you know one of the one of the main parts lincoln park is still going through that right now even if you have another vocalist if the thing about your band is that you have two that work together losing one of them is a huge deal yeah it's not the, not the same band almost it, it, it just right yeah, but so when when Duvall joined the band in 2006, uh, one of their first performances was at VH1's Decade of Rock live, honoring Heart, and <laughs> Ann Wilson was supposed to sing Rooster, and she heard Duvall sing it, you know, during their sound check, and she told them that he should sing it. And so that was basically his big coming out party for the band was due to Ann Wilson saying that he should sing the song. So that's just kind of an interesting little footnote in the history of that band. Well, and that's that's crazy, too, because, I mean, for Ann Wilson to step aside and say, no, you sing this, you sing it better. That's that is probably one of the greatest compliments anybody can ever get. Exactly. So we want to thank her for making that happen. And we want to thank William Duvall because. I mean, seriously, though, like out the resurrection of Alice in Chains is really one of my favorite rock stories because you've seen bands try to come back and pull off things like that after losing members. And it's it's real hit or miss. It can get real weird and uncomfortable sometime. But here you had a band that was dormant and everybody figured they were done. And William Duvall shows up being fantastic and being enough like Lane that it works, but not exactly like Lane to where it sounds like a knockoff. Yeah. And then we mentioned last week, Black Gives Way to Blue being just a remarkable comeback album. Just a, I would argue just about as good as anything else they'd made to that point. Well, and what you might not know is Jerry Cantrell did, did write a lot of the songs prior to Lane Staley passing away, but the new reformed version of Alice in Chains actually has a lot of input from William Duvall. Yeah. And so that's just, I'm just, to this day, still pretty amazed at that at that story and, and happy that, that he exists and is part of that band. I have to agree with you about it being one of the best success stories to come out of tragedy because, you know, just other examples that I'm, I'm thinking of, like Drowning Pool and and I think even Blind Melon tried to replace the singer and, and uh, you know, some other bands. It just has never really quite worked out. But this situation, it just it clicked. I, I think a lot of credit has to go to William Duvall for that because it's just the way he harmonizes so well and, and the 
contributions that he brings that makes it sound like they just never left off where they, you know, where they stopped. So just another one of the many, many influenced bands that the itches played over the years that are influenced by black lives and, and black rockers. And, and we can't say this enough that, you know, I, I truly believe that all rock music and everything is better with contributions from multiple cultures. It's one reason why America can be the greatest is if we actually put that all together. Yeah. So we're, we're envisioning a future of where rock music and music in general can go if various different cultures and backgrounds are, are truly, maybe I could say, given platform, equal platforms to shine and and to blend and mix and match as needed. I think that that exists to some degree, but I think there's certainly room for improvement even in the rock world for that. And it'll be it'll be cool to see where that goes. And it's evident that it still exists in, in music that comes out today. You know, one of our favorite new artists, Grandson, there's no doubt he's heavily influenced by black rockers and black hip hop artists and ra- and rappers. Yeah, there's there's no doubt that a lot of our music nowadays is heavily influenced by black artists and, and black rockers. And when I say our music, I mean the itches music is what I was referring to. <laughs> <laughs> just want to say that I just it just clicked in my head. <laughs> so hopefully we've had here a pretty historically accurate and educational and enjoyable trip through a little bit of rock history and the contributions of black artists to it. And how it's influenced the itch. And how it's influenced us. Exactly. And I mean, I'll be honest, to some degree, I didn't even realize how much it influenced us until I actually started sitting down to think about this episode. So this was a nice little bit of um, self-reflection. Yeah, a little bit of self-reflection for me, too. It was yeah. cool. Yeah. And that's all we can ask. You know, I think that's that's what we need to do is just educate ourselves on, on everything that's going on, educate ourselves on the history. Uh, and obviously not just rock music history, but just history in general of our country and and, uh, and all the atrocities that have been committed here and just hope that we can understand what led to those and try to create a better tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. Learn from our history. So if you would like to keep this conversation going with us, we would love to keep it going with you as well. You can find us online on Facebook or Twitter. The handle is itch rocks, I T C H R O C K S. You can also email us at itchrocks at gmail.com and we would love to keep going. Maybe you can introduce us to more artists that include rockers of color, as it were, and we can discuss them another time. That'd be fantastic or play them on the show someday. We would also love for you to leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. There will be a link in the show notes to this episode, as there is in every episode and every review uh, that we get helps us to improve and helps us to get in front of more ears and uh, more ears means more voices, means more discussion. And just means a better overall experience for us and for you. So The Itch has an ongoing playlist. It's called Rock Matters, and you can find that on Spotify, where we include songs that were taken from each week's episode and rotate through to give you a little bit of a soundtrack to go along with this show. And lately, we've had a couple of specialty ones uh, we've created as well. We created a playlist called The Itch Solidarity a few weeks back to express our solidarity with people who are, are struggling for equality. Last week, we created one for Red, White, and Blue for the 4th of July that you're more than welcome to go back and listen to. Songs aren't actually patriotic, but they do have some connection to those three colors. And this week, we'll have another one, a new playlist if you search for The Itch, and it will most likely be titled after this episode, where you can find songs by a number of Black rock artists. So in closing, we'd like to do a tribute to Black rock artists. So to Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, 
Fats Domino, Little Richard, and everyone else who paved the way. To every black songwriter who toiled in obscurity while their songs made millions for white artists. To war for giving us Lillo Ryder. To Jimi Hendrix, Prince, Slash, Lenny Kravitz, and Gary Clark Jr. for that sweet, sweet guitar. To suicidal tendencies and bad brains for bringing the hardcore punk. To Run DMC, Public Enemy, Body Count, and Cypress Hill for crossing musical borders. To Bob Marley for reminding us to pursue one love. To King's X, Embodiment, Zeo, and The Chariot for taking metal to the faithful. To Tom Morello for raging against the machine. To Living Color for bringing the funk. To Local H for reminding us that black drummers matter. To Lejean Witherspoon of Seven Dust for showing that a bullring can actually look good. To Brass Against and Wicked Wisdom for proving that women can rock too. To Block Party, TV on the Radio, The Deers, and She Wants Revenge for keeping it indie. To The Urge for representing St. Louis. <laughs> to William Duvall for giving Alice in Chains a second act. To Unlocking the Truth for showing that kids can do it too. To P.O.D., Nonpoint, and Skin Dread for giving us more of that dread rock. To everyone we didn't categorize, Kill Switch Engage, The Very Union, Straight Line Stitch, Sepertura, Gym Class Heroes, Head P.E., Death, Thin Lizzy, and The Dirty Worms. And to Turnstile, Fever 333, Dropout Kings, Bad Wolves, and Fire from the Gods for keeping it going to the next generation. We thank you for your contributions to rock. My name is Dan. I'm Casey. And I'm Aaron. You have been listening to The Itch, Rock Matters, and until next week, rock on. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please subscribe and tell a friend about the show. We've got plenty of links in the show notes to continue the conversation, including the episode's playlist. And you can interact with us on Twitter, Facebook, or through Gmail, all at Itch Rocks, I-T-C-H-R-O-C-K-S.